I mean, the reason why we are in the news most of the time now is because we, we are the first commercial drone operators that were fined by the FAA for operating UAVs. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show by helicopter aircrew for helicopter aircrew. Each episode, we explore the world of helicopters with the people that fly them and support them. Over at rotarywingshow.com, you can check out the latest on the blog and listen to past episodes. You'll also find the iTunes link there that you can use to subscribe to the show. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. Episode 5 of the Rotary Wing Show. Thank you for listening in again. In this episode, we'll be learning about radio-controlled aircraft and specifically quadcopters with video cameras strapped on them. If you would love to know how to get your low-flying kicks on the cheap and know more about the threat that the rise in, in drone users might pose to your helicopter operations, then this is going to be right up your alley today. Today's guest, Raphael Apieker, is right in the thick of emerging drone use and some of the legislation that governs it, and much more so than I knew when I first organized the interview, and you'll find out a bit more about that during the interview. So it could be a little bit controversial, and I would guess that a few of you might have some comments or opinions that you want to add to the website after listening to this one. And if you do, look, go for it. More locally here, yesterday I went to an Aviation Careers Expo in Brisbane. The initial plan was that we would be flying over in a MD500 and a Squirrel to act as a static display, but the weather was pretty average and that plan fell over. So there was a fair crowd, especially given the pretty bleak conditions there on the, uh, on the weekend, and not much of a rotary focus at all. So mainly it was set up to focus on airline cadet ships, very much so heavy on the engineering side, quite a few simulator companies there, unmanned systems, and of course Defence had a, a fairly large presence. The only helicopter in the, the main pavilion was a R44 set up as a, a non-flying engineering uh, training aid. So this thing had more avionics and screens and electrics than I've ever seen in an R44 before. But the road ahead and the rest of the actual mechanics of it was looking decidedly unairworthy. And that's just there as a, a training aid. But I guess it gave folks a chance to actually sit in a helicopter. But yeah, pretty light on. There wasn't much there. Outside, the bright spot as far as the helicopter point of view was an MRH and a Tiger helicopter from the Australian Army. And it was awesome to catch up with Robbo there, who must have been very close to one of the first loadmasters I ever flew with. And the always cheerful Grizzo, who flew with me on my very last Blackhawk flight. So that was a lot of fun catching up with those two guys and really surprised me actually to see how much room there is in the back of a MRH, which some listeners might know better as a NH90. So Grizzo, big cheers, mate, if you didn't end up finding the podcast and uh, love to catch up with you again soon. Now let's now make the jump over to Hong Kong and meet today's guest on the Rotary Wing Show. Raphael Picker, you're from uh, Team Black Sheep. So, look, thanks very much for joining us on the Rotary Wing show today. And thanks for having me. Yeah, and, and look, you go by the nickname uh, Trappy. I take it. Yeah. <laughs> so how'd you get that uh, name? I don't know. It's, it's a mixture of my initials and and some letters stuck to the front and to the end. So it, it doesn't really mean anything, but I thought it sounded kind of cool, and so I stuck with it. 
And you're in, you're obviously operating out of Hong Kong at the moment, and you've sort of been all over the world and a few different places, operating out of different places. And we won't get into that, but you've obviously different restrictions and different companies have meant the countries have meant you've ended up in Hong Kong. Yeah. So look, a very quick intro is normally this show would be interviewing helicopter pilots about the operations they do and and their flying and their career, whereas this one's going to be a fairly different. So I first came across Team Black Sheep and what you're doing, which we'll talk about first uh, person view, uh, basically quadcopters, off a, a CNN article. And there's a, a video you guys have got of um, two quadcopters flying out over the Costa Concordia wreck. And yeah, and basically followed back and, and found out about the videos and things you did there. But before that, I had no idea that this even existed, this thing called um, FPV. And so we'll get to talk about that in a moment and tell people what it is. And we might even get into the story about the Costa Concordia and the other crazy yep. stuff you guys are doing because some of it is a bit out there. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, there's two, two big reasons why I wanted to, to get you. And, and, again, thanks for giving us the time. Is, is One, I can imagine a lot of listeners and a lot of helicopter pilots would be pretty keen to have a go at this because it's like a, you know, such an associated uh, hobby uh, for when not flying. Yep. And we'll get into the first person view, but you know, you're looking through the camera and because you're flying a, you know, remote control quadcopter or an aircraft so low to the ground, it's like the, the speed rush we get when we're flying helicopters low, but without yeah. a lot of the expense and the, uh, and the risk. But then yeah. the second part as we get into that is the safety side. So there's going to be, you know, just a, a massive increase in the number of UAVs that are going to be flying and model aircraft. Uh, and so really keen to get your ideas as helicopter pilots, how we can sort of arm ourselves better knowledge-wise uh, mm-hmm. so that we can try and stay safe there. So how's that sound for a plan? Yeah, that sounds good. All right. So, <laughs> <I'll pick> <laughs> yeah. So, Trappy, what is this F- FPV thing? You want to uh, launch into that? So, I mean, basically you can imagine a, a, just a standard remote control airplane um, with a couple of gimmicks added on. So on the one hand, you have the... the the video camera, and you have the downlink that sends the video to the person on the ground. And on, on the ground, you have like these virtual reality goggles that will put you into the pilot's seat. And on the other hand, you have some kind of flight telemetry systems that will tell you the altitude, the speed, the distance, and autopilot that will return the plane safely in case you lose control or, um, you know, also if you want to go... And, and do waypoint navigation, so they will also allow you to do that. So you can basically click on Google Maps where you want to fly to, and the plane will just fly there um, by itself. So we're really taking this way beyond um, like model aircraft, and this is what the, I guess they're calling it, you know, an unmanned aerial system. But that's the thing I want to stress is the fact that, yeah, so when you're flying this thing, you've got goggles on your head, and you're looking at TV screens inside the goggle, and you're looking out the front of the aircraft uh, as it's flying along. Exactly. Right. Where did it start out? Like, I know you guys were pretty early on in the piece, but like, who who were the first people doing this, and, and where in the world did it happen? Um, it was in the U.S. in uh, in California, pretty, a pretty long time ago. So I, I think this came up for a short period of time um, among very wealthy individuals in the late '80s, early '90s, and it kind of slowed down until 2005, 2006, 2007. That's when the first people started picking it up again through you know, all this security technology that was coming out because um, September 9-11, all these CCTV cameras, radio links, and, and started improving. And, and the technology just got smaller and smaller and, and, and more affordable. And so kind of um, 
you would say maybe the, in the last 10 years is when it has been developing and we've been at this for six or seven years now and are, I mean, so widely regarded as, as pioneers. So really this, there's been an, an exponential growth in the last three years now in, in, in these, these things and in different kinds of uh, devices that they can fly through the air. Would that be a good analogy? There's almost like the early versions were purely that, getting a like a, a home security camera, strapping it on the front of a a, a model airplane or a, a quadcopter, and that's, that's, that's exactly it. what it was. Yeah. <laughs> and how did you guys? So your team, Black Sheep, uh, you got a engineering background. I don't, but um, the two co-founders of the company that that work alongside me, they they do have an engineering background. Okay, and. Again, give folks an idea. So you, you're creating these kits from scratch and then distributing them uh, worldwide. Exactly. We, we build um, accessories to already widely popular remote control airplanes. So our, our, first, um, our first big product was just a voltage regulator and a video transmitter that you could put onto an existing aircraft and snap that on very easily. And then we kind of ventured out from there and we built um, camera frames that will... Um, give you the fully stabilized uh, GoPro view, or um, uh, and now we're going to be launching a small helicopter that works around a very popular and um, very cheap uh, keychain camera. So it's kind of a uh, we take something that we really like and we build a flying system around it, just to give you that that kind of um, that edge uh, in the seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll go into the different parts that actually go into the system in a moment, but. Who's buying the stuff? Like, what feedback are you getting from your customers as far as, you know, what jobs they have or what previous experience they've had? We have a lot of airplane pilots who just love the idea of flying and, and they just can't get enough. So they, they want to be flying even when they're at home in their living room. And this kind of gives them that possibility because you get this um, flying feeling through these virtual reality goggles that puts you in that seat. Um, and, and it's a really neat way to, to experience I would say um, if, if you're like a, a air airline pilot, you really get this speed of world only from 15, 20,000, 30,000 feet. So, so this is kind of the, a different perspective again on the aerial view, you know, in, 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 the, in the sector between zero and maybe 400, 500 feet. The basic components then, so you've got the vehicle. So in this case, you know, a fixed wing model or a quadcopter. Yes. What so you briefly touched on before, but if you picked up two different ones and one was set up for um, FPV and one wasn't, like what are the, the main bits and pieces involved as far as hardware goes? Um, I, I mean, at the very least, you would have some kind of voltage regulator on it with a video transmitter, um, because typically the voltage that is that is on the aircraft is not fit for for the video transmitters. Um, some video transmitters already have that voltage regulator inside. Um, then you would have a CCTV camera or a little GoPro camera. And that's pretty much it already for, for a minimum setup. And then you just need the cables to connect the video camera to the video transmitter and to your batteries. And then you're good to go. And on the ground side, what do you have on the ground? On the ground, you have uh, video goggles and, um, and video receivers. Um, and, and these work on two different... or I mean, there's four different frequencies, but two of them are the most popular ones. You would have the 5.8 gigahertz, which gives you ranges of about up to a kilometer, a kilometer and a half. And then you have the 2.4 gigahertz systems that we use that will give you ranges of up 
to maybe 15 to 20 kilometers. 15, 20, that's crazy. Okay, now probably the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the Discovery Pro is your quadcopter design. Is that yeah. the the most popular or is that the thing you guys are most well known for? Actually, it's the Discovery, which was a version previous to that. And that's, I, I would say it's the most popular FPV quadcopter out there because it's, it's very beginner friendly. Um, it's very uh, robust. It has built-in um, breaking points. So if you do crash, uh, you end up replacing the $3 plastic arms and, and, and usually nothing else breaks. And, and then from that, a step up, you know, if you, if you want to go pro, so to say, you get the Discovery Pro, which will give you um, stabilized footage. You can switch between the, the film camera and your pilot camera, or you can have your friend control the, the film camera while you pilot the aircraft. So it's kind of already a, a semi-professional or prosumer product that allows you to shoot really cool footage. And look, I'll, try, I'll get photos and I'll take some YouTube videos and put it on the, the show notes with this episode okay. as well. But yeah. if, if you had to describe it, it's about the footprint of a laptop, would you say? A little bit bigger, but uh, pretty much. I mean, it's uh, 450 millimeters across. And the design, and this is where the Discovery, I guess, differs from a lot of other ones you'll we'll see. It. You've basically got like two circuit boards with um, risers in between them. And you yep. fit all the bits and pieces around that, and you've got four plastic arms that, that uh, have the, the quadcopter, I guess, rotors on it. Exactly. And what, what's make, what makes this design so special is, is that the circuit is integrated into the frame. So we, we save a lot of weight, and that gives us more flight time. Um, most of the other quadcopters, they will have a shell and then have the components separately. And that adds a lot of wiring mess um, and a lot of points of failure as well. How heavy is it? What's the like the general weight? Fully loaded, it's about 1.5 to 2 kilos. Okay. And I guess we'll get into that bit when we talk about the safety towards the end. But um, how, yeah. how fast do you get them to go? Like, do, you, do you radar clock them at all or how, how fast they normally well, get along? Well, we have GPS speed on board. <laughs> so oh, of course. Speed, so um, um, I've, I've, I've taken mine to up to 120 kilometers per hour down yep. a mountain. Okay. Uh, so the, the flying wings go a lot faster, so these can go up to 200, 220 even. I've got a big one that does more than 240. So they're, they're really um, high-performance machines as well. How high can you get them? Uh, this is something you're not going to like. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to like the answer. <laughs> um, well, we've taken the flying wings up to 20,000 feet uh, altitude, and I mean, from, from the ground. So... Uh, uh, one of our projects will be to fly over Mount Everest with uh, one of the flying wings, so they can really they can really go high up. But it's not really something that's very interesting. Um, <laughs> and, the, and for the quadcopters, probably around twelve thousand feet in altitude. But again, yeah. you're you're just you're just in the air, and and it looks like Google Earth, and and there's a lot of money involved. So yeah. um, <laughs> you're just sweating until you get it back to back closer to the ground. <laughs> All right, we'll uh, <laughs> go into that subject too much. How many, like, I don't know if you can talk about your sales figures or if you want to talk generally about the industry, but, yeah, but uh, how many of these are hitting the, hitting the market? Well, there's a very popular model that, that um, it's called the DJI Phantom, which um, I, I, I don't know how much they sell, but um, I mean, everybody has one pretty much. Um, it, it doesn't have FTV, so it, it's just a multi-rotor where you can add FTV onto it. For us, I mean, I would say, and 
Australia is a very big market because it's it's a very big country and, and people just love to to explore stuff. So the discovery is is very popular there as well. Um, it's certainly a market that hasn't been around two years ago, um, but just started um, now in the last two to three years. Can you give rough figures per month or or per year sold, just to give people an idea of, of how many of these are, are heading out um, there? Across the entire industry, it's probably around 50,000 to 80,000 models a month going worldwide. So um, Australia is probably around 20% of that, so maybe 20,000 a month. All right, so plenty. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's a toy, you know, and, and people crash. <laughs> so, okay, so there's a replacement. 20, yeah. <laughs> Uh, it's hard. To, it's hard to gauge the the replacement figure. <laughs> okay, good business for you guys then. Uh, yes. All right. Let's talk about some of the features then. So you talked about, um, and this is crazy again for fellow pilots because we spent so much time and effort learning how to hover. But yeah, so can you talk about the I guess the auto hover, the stability features built in, and some of the GPS hold and, and GPS tracking that's built into it? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is especially true for the for the quadcopters. So the flying wings that we use, actually we try to fly um, as purely as possible so they don't have any stability or any autopilot in there whatsoever. However, the, the quadcopters, they require some sort of computer already in between um, just to make them flyable. So that adds um, a lot of possibility. For example, if you let go of the sticks, this thing will just hover dead in the air. Even if there's side winds, anything, um, it will automatically compensate and hover within a maybe a two-meter radius. And if you lose control or if you turn off your remote control, it will actually come back and land um, right where it took off. So that's an added safety feature in case you lose the video signal or in case somebody disturbs you while you're flying, um, you can just turn off the remote control and it will actually come back automatically. And this is the crazy part. The box that does that, how much would that cost? Um, it's about 200 200 Twenty dollars, so it's not really that much, um, and that's already uh, one of the better ones. So you can actually get something for around one hundred and twenty to one hundred and fifty dollars with already all of this capability. Okay. And that's and look, I think we'll see more and more of that. But uh, yeah, for pilots, it makes us cry the amount of effort we spend yeah. uh, learning how to yes. hover. But uh, that's just the way things are going. How do people learn? So would they normally be? You know, or do you recommend they, they learn how to fly you know, the quadcopter or an aeroplane separately visually? Yeah, is it? Okay. You need to kind of have the, the reaction um, because it, it's a little bit like hovering a real helicopter. You need to kind of guess ahead what's going to happen and correct ahead of time to really get it to stable. Otherwise, you will just start oscillating. And this, this, will, this is also true for, for the GPS mode because the higher you are, the less movement you see. So it's um, it's a little bit weird because also you don't have the, the G-force feedback. So you kind of should know already how to control it um, visually and then add on that FPV equipment. All right. And knowing how to fly a helicopter, does it give you any advantage whatsoever or, or it's like new, learning a new skill? I, I don't know. I've, I've never flown a helicopter, a real one before, but I, I would guess it, it translates very well. Um, we have uh, like fixed wing um, or, or like passenger aircraft pilots that will just pick this up and, and all, they already have all the navigational skills that are required and all of the, the motory skills, basically. It comes very, very natural. Okay, cool. Good to know all that training doesn't go to waste. <laughs> uh, so you talk about some of the limitations, just like you know, we're just talking physical limitations here as far as range and the frequency and things go. So you, 
you're stuck is the, the you talked about the four frequencies you can use that's yeah. a um, a limitation or a fixed requirement of the electronics well not just the electronics it's also a, a regulatory um, requirement i think in australia you're even limited to 5.8 and 2.4 i'm not even sure if 1.2 is allowed in australia um, and then the, another one will be 900 megahertz where, where all the mobile phones are so you typically want to stay away from that frequency and you have to use two because you use one frequency to control the aircraft and then one frequency to get the video back. Is that right? Exactly. Because at the moment, the video transmission is still analog. So you don't have the possibility to merge those two together. I oh, think. Okay. So, so it's moving that way. So digital. So you'll be able to have them on the same, on the same channel. Yeah. We're, we're still a little bit out on that because it's, it's very difficult to get that low latency and, and high, um, uh, high range digital video to the ground. And there are systems already, but they cost upwards of uh, thousand, two thousand US dollars. So, okay. uh, you know, compare that to a fifty dollar video transmitter on analog, that goes maybe three or four times more the distance. Um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I guess there's no big driving reason for that. Yeah. Um, the goggles you're actually looking through. What kind of like how how good is the resolution of that, and is it getting better quickly, or is it is it limited by bandwidth, and are you looking through a CTT TV camera or can you actually look through the GoPro? Uh, you can look through the GoPro, but again, it's, it's just the analog out. So you get a picture that's roughly equivalent to 480p. So that's your uh, standard resolution um, YouTube video uh, approximately. And the problem is with the, with the goggles, they are not developing as fast as they could because the resolution on the downlink is not there. So there's really no incentive for the goggles to get much better because the, I mean, the underlying footage is not, or the underlying video link is not that good. Okay, so things like your Oculus Rift and, and all the other things that are coming out of the computers, it's not such a drama because you just physically can't get the, the quality signal. Exactly, exactly. I, I would think that FPV, because it's such a fast developing um, industry, it, it would actually be, if, if we had an HD link, we would have the HD dollars as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And, and that's, that's not on the horizon then, by the sounds of things. Um, it, I mean, there, there are already HD goggles. They just cost $800 versus $200, $250 for the standard definition one. So um, I would say 99.9% of the people are flying with standard definition goggles. The videos you then see on YouTube, that's when the cameras come back and you're dropping the, the full quality off the GoPro camera in that case. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. Now, if people uh, Google your name, Trappy, uh, there's going to be some interesting things come up. And I didn't realize before, uh, just before this one, I did it. But uh, all right, let's quickly talk about um, legislation and where things are going and maybe talk about uh, your role in that. And yeah, uh, and then if we can talk about the territory. <laughs> yeah, because uh, again, you're probably in one of the the hot seats there. And then if we can talk about some helicopter uh, safety aspects. So, yeah. do you want to talk about um, why your name comes up in, in Google? <laughs> um, okay. Well, I mean, we're we're pioneers, so um, we have to cross certain boundaries that are um, sometimes go into the gray areas of the law. So, you know, we we try out our equipment in various places. And we, we try to push ourselves in, in mostly in terms of technology, but also in terms of piloting skills. So, I mean, we, we've been called daredevils, which I would say is not really that appropriate, but I oh, guess. Come on, you have, you have it in the title of your website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, so, and, and also, they, 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 
uh, they call us uh, aerial anarchists. So uh, you know, it's it's it kind of comes with the territory. Like I was saying, when when you really try to push certain boundaries, you know, you 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 become you you get this sort of this rebel image. And I mean, the reason why we are in the news most of the time now is because we we are the first commercial drone operators that that were fined by the FAA for for operating UAVs. And I would guess it's a very bad example for for how legislation is made in the U.S. because they kind of put a blanket ban on it. However, only if you do it for money. So you can do one thing perfectly legally and you do the same thing again and you collect a fee and it, it becomes a, a very finable offense. <laughs> yes, yeah, so, so they slapped you with a, a 10 grand uh, fine, but the yeah. that was overturned then in, in the appeal. Is that correct? No, actually, we went to court on it because I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, just as a matter of principle, I, I don't, I don't approve of this sort of, uh, of this sort of rulemaking. And the, the judge said, um, our view of the situation was right, which says that there are actually no regulations concerning these UAVs in the United States. And of course, the FAA appealed, and now we're still pending the appeal. But if you look at it from a legal point of view, I mean, I've talked to a lot of lawyers and all of them have pretty much pointed in the direction of, of what the judge was saying. So it's, it's not looking good for the FAA. What are you seeing? And I, I, I would imagine that in, here in Australia, a lot of our rules in this regard will follow the FAA. In uh, Europe and, and things like that, what are you seeing globally as far as are there sort of legislation bodies, are they holding back? Are they trying to introduce things? Are they waiting to see what the FAA does? No, um, the FAA is um, is a very bad example, and they're and and they're they're light years behind, um, for example, what Australia is doing. Um, Australia is actually widely regarded as one of the the pioneers in in this industry. Um, they have uh, various regulations and also weight classes, certification, which is probably why you have as as a full scale pilot you haven't heard of it as much. Because once you have regulations in place, the rules become a lot more clear, and pilots on on both machines know how how to respond better. So you know, in the United States, you have near misses with with helicopters or with with with, with airplanes, you know, near airports, all of these things, because people don't really know what is allowed and what isn't, or what is smart and what isn't. And the FAA kind of has this, this um, enforcement through media kind of um, approach. So whenever anything gets into the media, that's when they start to get active, which I think is um, is very detrimental to to the overall safety of the air, of the of the of the national airspace. And uh, Australia is a very good example of how how it should be done. Okay, good to hear. But uh, yeah, because I can just see more and more of these uh, in the air uh, every every month because it's just. You know, it's such an attractive thing for people to go in and pick one up and go flying, yeah. uh, and then we'll get into the part where they're, they're flying next to us as well. But before we leave the the first person view part of it, like what's been like, what's the the best thing about it uh, for you personally, and, and sort of like where's you been the the favorite place you've ended up going uh, with it? Well, I, I think the, the fa- my my favorite flights are still the ones where I explore the backyard of of of, of Austria, of my um, of my hometown, and just go up the mountains and fly around with with my fixed wing aircraft. And and this is kind of what got me into this 
whole thing. Um, I was a model aircraft pilot, and I never found it really that interesting because you were looking at the model, um, which in my case was never really properly built, never really looked that nice. So once you could actually take the pilot seat and experience this this way of flying and experience it, you know, just let's go for a quick flight after lunch kind of thing, you know, which was is not really possible, especially not in Europe, um, if you want to really sit in in the pilot seat. So you just have a half an hour flight after lunch, land in your backyard, pack everything up, and continue your work or whatever you've been doing. So that's kind of the thing that got me into it. Yeah, and it does look addictive. But um, okay, excellent. So Jeremy, let's talk uh, helicopter pilots then. Yeah. You know what 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 can you give us as as information about you know the the mindset of operators and and how you guys would set up on a site. You know, how can we, because we will be sharing the airspace uh, more and more because we're yeah. operating at the same levels. Uh, you know, yeah, how do we know more and how do we protect ourselves? Well, there's this widely regarded um, rule in, in our community, um, you know, stay below 400 feet, um, no matter where you fly and, and stay three miles out of airspace, out, out of um, airspace around airports. So I would say that... Um, most of the pilots adhere to these rules and they will stay below these, these, um, I mean, they're not really law, I think, even, even in, in, I think maybe in Australia they are law. So, so these kind of things. And, and when you see a multi-rotor in, in your helicopter, you just need to know that they will not be able to climb and descend very quickly, but they can go left, right, forward and back much faster. So, um, their method of evasion will probably be a sideways uh, maneuver rather than up and down. So okay. that's pretty much all I can say. Um, it, it, it's been, in, I mean, I, I don't think, I mean, I've, I've never seen, I've, I've done some helicopter flights in my area, um, and I've never really seen uh, remote control aircraft. I've seen lots of birds, um, but, you know, they're not that popular yet where where you would imagine yourself flying through a swarm of, of, of drones. <laughs> And what are your chances of, of actually spotting one if you're flying along at sort of normal helicopter speeds and things like that? Like you've, you've obviously seen a lot of them flying around as sort of talking, you know, UAVs or, or drones and that flying around visually. Yeah. What are your chances of actually picking them up? Well, if, if you're not flying very low to the ground, I would say if you're, if you're above 400 feet, if you see one play the lottery on that day, <laughs> right. it's, it's about, it's very similar. <laughs> Cool. So you're not going to see them. Uh, is there particular places that you know folks will go and launch them from? Uh, like, I know you obviously can launch it from your backyard, but is there in in Australia? I'm guessing is you know different areas and licensing and things like that. But again, this podcast is going out to a global audience. Is it you know school ovals? Uh, where would folks normally go to to set these up and fly them? Usually, a city park, um, especially in the United States. They've just been banned from all national parks, so you won't see them there anymore, or not as much. Typically also around very interesting sites, so around um, the opera in, in Sydney, for example, you would see a lot of people you know, taking shots of that, or bridges, or, or big buildings. You know, just stuff that looks spectacular from the ground, but where people would typically want an aerial perspective as well. Okay, you talked about like the 15 to 20k range. Uh, how many of them would have that sort of range? Or, or how many would sort of, uh, I don't know, do you do beyond visual sight? Would you have the, the, the quadcopter or the drone actually go out where you could actually see it with, you, with your 
visual eye? Yeah, I mean, we, we fly a lot out of visual line of sight, uh, but typically what we try to stay within is um, we, we, we have a spotter next to us, and he is, he is um, in charge of monitoring the airspace. So we will never actually fly beyond the, the line of sight of the operator for the airspace. So typically that will be around five to eight kilometers in any given direction. And also the, the video link is not going to be um, working, let's say, for example, behind the mountain. So you will never see a drone operator operating a drone from the other side of a mountain, for example. And we should, with the visual acuity of the, the goggle screens that you've got, is it, is it enough to pick up other aircraft? And again, you're, you, well, I don't know, what's what's the uh, field of views or roughly when you're looking at the front of a of the Discovery Pro or, yeah. and using a, you know, an average goggle and, and the cameras you use, how many degrees of, of view would you have? Um, it, it differs uh, for the lenses. For example, on the GoPro, you have a very wide angle view. On our models for the pilot camera, we sell a camera that has a 90 degree field of view which is um, roughly, I think, what, what the human eye is used to. Okay. Uh, in, in, terms of, in, uh, in, in terms of focal, focal distance. Uh, so it kind of looks more natural, so that's why we, that's why we chose this kind of uh, view. But the, I, I think you're not going to be able to see, I mean, probably helicopters you can see very well, but um, in, in, our, in our neck of the woods there were a lot of gliders, and the spotter saw them um, years before before we actually saw them in the goggles. If we ever saw them in the goggles. Yeah, good because that's yeah, kind of what I was drawing out is, is you know how how clearly you can see that sort of stuff through the actual goggles themselves. Yeah. All right, what can we do as far as you know uh, as pilots or operators in a particular area uh, trying to reach out and, and connect and communicate with anyone who might be flying drones or or UAVs in our local area? Uh, is there Good forum websites. Is it a, really just a local thing, depending on on where you are, what country you are, uh, what forums there are? You know, inviting them out to the hangars to sort of show them around the helicopters and have a look at the equipment they're using uh, and have that sort of knowledge sharing going on. Is there much of that happening? Would you be keen to see that happen? Uh, I, I would be actually very keen to see that happening. Um, I was I was pretty much chased out of out of my town um, from from the local helicopter pilot. That, that do a, I, mean, I come from a touristic region where they do a lot of uh, search and rescue for, for um, you know, down skiers or an avalanche situation, and they they pretty much call the police on us and harass us, and so we, I mean, we didn't stop flying, we just went into hiding, and they we never had any close encounter that really um, would warrant that sort of response. So I, I think it's very interesting that that you actually mentioned, you know. Um, uh, direct communication, which I think is very important, you know, keep the dialogue going and, I mean, share the airspace, kind of, you know, not have this kind of top-down view because um, then people are just going to, I mean, they're not going to stop doing it and, and, and they're just going to do it more recklessly or, or you know, hiding hiding more and, and, and caring less about, about your, your safety. So... The best place to meet up people would be on FTV Lab. That's FTVLab.com. Um, it's an international forum, and um, there are a lot of people there from Australia. I, I don't know how, how popular it would be in your local area. You would need to check. 
All right. So, yeah, well, look, Trappy, thank you. You shared a heap of stuff there, and it'd be interesting to see the comments that uh, get left on on this episode because there's going to be quite, you know, passionate people either way. And, yeah, you know, from our point of view, it is super scary because the uh, the risk first reward thing for us is, you know, you obviously lose your – and we didn't talk about prices, but some of these, you know, you're talking about $2,000 or or $2,500 for a – for a, a pretty good hobby toy there uh, yeah. versus the, the life and the, and the cost of helicopters and things. So it's something that we're in the industry are, you know, <laughs> quite concerned about and the fact there's going to be more and more. But again, it's just going to be something we're going to have to know more and more about uh, because it's, it's not going to go away. And uh, yeah, look, if, I guess it's just a case of being uh, forewarned and forearmed. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, with, with the proliferation of these things, there will be more safety features added and also governmental regulators becoming more receptive to, to safety technology because one of the very strange things that we learned in Switzerland, we, we offered to add transponders, transponders into our drones while, while we were flying around and, and, and we were shut down by, by the local aviation authority there. So, you know, kind of to not even allow them the notion of, of having the right to the airspace. And with the volumes of these things going up, you know, they're, they're slowly starting to realize that there's no stopping this by, by just slamming it down. And once that happens, I think you will see transponders in them. You will be able to maybe have automatic um, evade uh, maneuvers built into the drone so that you could fly at them and they will just move out of the way, kind of like a, like a you know, anti-collision detection that like they have in burst one. Can you altitude limit them? Can you have like an altimeter in there which will just um, not cut the controls but stop them going above a certain height? They are actually, and you can set the altitude to the software interface. The government is not going to be able to stop this because the, I mean everything is hackable. So um, it's kind of a thing where you know if you want to fly responsibly, these machines allow you to do that by setting the altitude limit to a limit that adheres to your local regulations. Okay. Look, um, it's getting late. I know you've had a big day and you've got a heap on your plate and you're prepping to, to go away on holidays. So, uh, Trappy, thanks very much for, for sharing the time with us and, and telling us about the sort of gear. And it's, yeah, look, super interested, one, as a, as a hobby, uh, and then also professionally for what we do. So, thanks heaps. Yeah, thanks a lot for the ballot. And that was Trappy from Team Black Sheep. I really enjoyed doing that interview because, as I said earlier in the piece, I did spend a lot of time several months ago researching different quadcopters and watching the Team Black Sheep videos and also browsing through their forums. And Trappy is quite influential in that community, so it was interesting getting to hear his take on uh, several of those uh, topics. And as far as the aircraft goes, the Discovery and Discovery Pro quadcopter they build has quite a big following. If I was going to buy a RC quadcopter tomorrow, it'd probably be one of those two models that I would actually get. If you're interested in that sort of uh, things, check that out. It was only just before recording that interview that I was actually Googling uh, his full name and discovered all the material relating to his run-in with the FAA. Uh, so you might want to find some stuff there too and make your own opinion about uh, those sort of aspects. There is a, a huge demand though building up for these small flying machines. Amazon has announced plans to use drones for deliveries. The media want to use them for access to disaster areas. Real estate and commercial photography businesses want them. 
and are starting to operate them. Farmers wanted them to check their properties. And there's obviously the, the military applications. And of course, the hobby industry is really pushing them hard as well. And prices from these systems are dropping uh, massively as well. So as Trappy said there, it's about $2,500 for a full kit with the Discovery Pro and the goggles. And even you know a couple of years ago, that would probably be twenty-five grand set up. So those costs and the uh, mass production is just really driving the, the price down for those types of machines. That's not just the small end of town either. The U.S. Marines have only just recently brought back uh, to the U.S. an unmanned Cayman K-Max that's been operating in Afghanistan. And that's been clocking up about 750 hours over there. It's been lifting uh, loads up to 6,000 pounds. So that's pretty impressive. And so while legislation might hold all these back for a little while, I think it's something as a helicopter industry, we really need to get in and get amongst it and get involved early. So Trappy was really keen on the idea of engagement when I brought it up. Things like inviting the local RC pilots and operators out to your hangar, showing them around your helicopters and talking to them about your operations. So talking about things like the, the heights you're flying, at speeds, the areas, the limitations that you have to actually seeing these small aircraft and being able to avoid them. And in that way, we can build up a bit of shared knowledge and have that relationships between helicopter crews and the drone operators because we'd be potentially sharing that same airspace at low level. And at the end of the day, it's going to be us that comes off much worse in any collision. Uh, so we really need to sort of you know, be talking to these guys and, and working on that. On a, a slightly different tangent, the guys at Team Black Sheep have absolutely nailed their marketing. They know exactly who the target market is, uh, what makes them tick, where they hang out, what they're buying, and the types of things that will make them share online virally, and hence some of the spectacular videos that they've gone and had produced. But even the technical side of their online marketing is, is really well done. Although, Trappy, if you're listening, you don't have any custom SEO meta descriptions filled out for all your web pages. Taking in contrast your average aviation company whose online setups are really pretty woeful. If you operate or work for a helicopter company that needs a better online marketing, then please check out this episode's sponsor, which is trainmorepilots.com. You'll be able to download some free resources from there. I've had a couple of emails come through this week from listeners in the US and China. You might remember that obviously the last episode we did, we were talking about flying in China. So thanks guys, really good to hear from you and get your feedback. If you've got some feedback you want to send me about the show, or ideas about future guests, and please hit me up at feedback at rotarywingshow.com. If you'd like an email alert sent out when new shows are published, then also on the website at rotarywingshow.com, you'll find a place to leave your email address there, and you'll get those alerts when I publish a new episode. In the next episode, we're going to be heading to South Africa to be joined by Etienne Gerber from the Zululand Anti-Poaching Wing and learn about the work they're doing over there to protect rhinos. You've been listening to the Rotary Wing Show again. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. If you like the show, don't forget to leave a review on iTunes, and please pass the the word around. Thoughts and opinions expressed on the show are those of the host and the interviewees, and don't reflect those of their employers. Till next time, fly safe.